to another edition of Nose to Nose with Michael Kutza, that's me. And Gino Suarez, that's me. So we're going to talk about a lot of things today. Um, suddenly I just discovered Netflix. Mm. I've been avoiding it. So now I'm starting to binge watch things and, and, and I'm annoyed because I can't stop. Wasn't that the beauty of it? I don't know. I wanted to see this psycho thing uh, called Bates Motel because it has this kid in it that I like from The Good Doctor because I'm a doctor phobe. What is his name again? Uh, Freddie Freddy Highmore. He's a Fred Brit- British actor. He's, yeah. He's a kid. He was a kid in uh, what, those. Was he, he was a kid in the movie with the rat when they were a kid with Hugh Laurie. Really? I think so. Because Hugh Laurie was in the other Doctor series, The House. Or maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I, I could be wrong. Anyways, continue. Anyway, so so I, I searched it out because I knew he was in it, and I started watching Bates Motel. I figured, okay, it's psycho. It's going to take two episodes. You, you kill the girl in the shower, and you um, have killed your mother, and the show's over. Now, suddenly, I start watching the first episode, the second episode, and this is going on for three days now. They've extended this story to the point where... It's not psycho. It's more than psycho. It's everyone in town is getting killed. Everyone's killing each other. I'm only into into episode what eight. <laughs> I had no idea that it worked this um, way. How many episodes a night are you watching? I don't know. I watch two or three because they, but they don't end. They're each one's in like an hour. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're beautifully done, but the story is insane. So I'm going to keep watching until he kills the girl in the shower. <laughs> I well, I wonder if they're even going to play that. Like, I wonder how far away from the actual movie are they trying to get? It's, it's, it's a book. Uh, it's written by a Chicago guy named uh, Robert Block, I think his name was. He wrote the original Psycho. Now, the question is, is the book this elongated story? I mean, I'd have to look into that. You'd have to read the book. I guess so. Hmm. I don't know anything about the book, so I can't comment on it. But you saw Psycho, the movie, right? I've seen it a while back. Sure. The classic scene where that person gets murdered and the or the woman gets murdered in the shower is yeah. pop culture. You see that video everywhere. And interesting Alfred Hitchcock film, but that scene, the shower scene was supposedly laid out, blocked out and done by a graphic designer friend of mine named Saul Bass. Was he a cinematographer or what? He's a, he did he all the titles for every Hitchcock film, graphics, okay. graphics. But he also graphically laid out the shower scene. In terms for, of? For, the whole thing for Hitchcock. Because when you make movies, you have to make... Uh, Storyboards. Yeah. And that's all storyboarded. And Saul did that. And Hitchcock, of course, takes the credit for it, but it really was Saul Bass. Anyway, that's something to... Storyboarding is my least favorite part of any pre-production. I can do anything writing-related, but when it comes to... Pre-production drawing, oh my God, it drives me insane. But Hitchcock is famous to storyboard every inch of every one of his films. The amount of meticulous work that it takes to storyboard something is, well, I can't do it. But at the same time, the reason people do that is to establish shot by shot. Yeah. But can you imagine you're essentially playing a movie in your head shot by shot, and you have to draw them? That's how he, he loved doing that, yeah. Did Alfred That's how meticulous he was. His did he was. do the drawings himself? I believe so. His, his, except for the shower scene, which, as I said, was done by Saul Bass. We were talking about other films uh, earlier, we were talking, and I mentioned this one floor of the Cuckoo's Nest because uh, it was something we premiered at the Chicago Film Festival back in... Uh, 
1975. I mean, it's, that's not a Hitchcock movie, is it? No, no. Okay. I'm over Hitchcock. <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> well, well, before we go to the, the cuckoo's nest, would do you think Alfred Hitchcock would approve of the show uh, Bates Motel, being that he was the one who made Psycho? I, I can't imagine that, that he would go on with this pr- prolonged prolonged exposition of the, this, this family and the characters and the... Would you know Albert Hitchcock at all? No, Did you ever get never, to meet him? never met him. Never met him. I know people that work with him, but I've never met him. What, what was he like? I've seen videos of him, and he seems very stoic. And, and a wo- womanizer. Was he a womanizer? Especially with blondes, yes. See, I didn't know that. But it's interesting when you watch videos of people in the past, and you kind of have mm-hmm. to try to get to know them through these videos. And it's only like a certain... Time frame, but he seemed very. He was very British, very well spoken. I would say. Hmm. You'd have to read the book Hitch, written by this friend of mine, John Russell Taylor, author, and he goes into all the details of Alfred and his life. And I think I want to read about that because he, from the interviews I've seen on YouTube and the small amounts of the Alfred Hitchcock show presents mm-hmm. or Alfred Hitchcock presents, he seems like a very there's just something about him that's just kind of off, but at the same time, it's so intriguing. And if it isn't the case, he'll make it the case because that's his that's his gimmick. This is gig. Yeah. yeah. I bring up Cuckoo's Nest because it's like an anniversary, and this is uh, something we we had the world premiere of way back then, and it came about in an odd way. But have you ever seen the film? The film. I have seen uh, the film. It was a play, then it became a film, and the play was on Broadway. Starring uh, Kirk Douglas. Okay. And then years later, Kirk bought the, the show and gave it to his son, Michael Douglas, who later made it into a movie. Okay. Then it stayed on Broadway with different actors because Kirk was then too old to play the part. And besides Michael playing it, even the local guy, Gary Sinise, played it on Broadway okay. from Steppenwolf. But the film came along from uh, one of my board members at the film festival was a lawyer. And he was putting together tax, uh, tax shelter positions to save film companies. And he did this for Paramount Pictures, and uh, this law firm saved Paramount by inventing the tax shelter. <clears throat> and the first film they did was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Milos Farmer's a famous Czech director, did it. And you have Jack Nicholson playing the part of Michael Douglas and Kirk Douglas, actually. And... Um, Louise Fletcher plays the woman, and Danny DeVito is one of the inmates. So we had the premiere, as I mentioned, in 75, in Chicago, at a giant movie theater called the Granada Theater, long torn down, up on Sheridan and Devon, the movie palace. Okay. Held about 3,300 people. It's like the Chicago Theater. It was a magnificent thing. And it was packed, and you had all the stars there, and... We had 3,500 people. So that means you had people sitting in the aisles. Wall-to-wall people. Okay. Right. Insane. So, of course, as in Chicago, somebody calls the bomb squad, the fire department, and the police department to stop the show. Always. Yeah, this is pretty scary. So 
In those days, there was a powerful man in Chicago that helped me start the festival named Irv Cupsonet. I mentioned him to you once. He was my mentor. I don't remember him. He's the one who introduced me to Colleen. Oh, okay. Anyway, he was there to host it and to emcee it. And he is confronted by the fire department, police department, and the bomb squad in the lobby of this place. And they said, we have to close this thing down. And Cupstone's a very strong, strong guy. He used to work, he used to be on the Bears. He was a football team. Yeah. And he said, you're not going to close this down, and you're not going to empty this theater, or you will cause a riot. Yeah, it's true, yeah. He said, you're going to let this thing go. He said, we can't, because it's a fire trap, and they're all sitting in the aisles, and you've got to stop it. He said, no, we can't stop it, and you've got to, this, let, it, you've got to let it play out. This train is rolling, and we're not going anywhere. That's exactly right. And he convinced them, and we did it. However... So the director, his name is Milos Foreman, the Czech director in America, uh, the hottest thing at that time. And uh, as I mentioned, this is the world premiere of the film. So the film was a 35-millimeter film uh, in those days. And it, was a, it had just come from the laboratory, so it was, it was called a wet, wet print, which means it had not dried yet. So when you put it through the projector the heat of the lamp starts to expand and contract the celluloid. So it goes in and out of focus a little bit at the beginning. So the director's watching this with his 3,500 people going nuts because his picture is slightly out of focus. So he says, i got to talk to the projectionist. And I said, you can't do that because the projectionists are on the seventh floor. And in Chicago, the projectionists are run basically by the mafia. And this is in the days which was created by Al Capone, by the way, the projectionist union, control of projectionists. So they were really mob guys. I said, you can't go talk to them. He said, well, I've got to talk to them. They're screwing up my movie. He said, well, and then they, the projectionist knew he was coming, so they turned off the elevator. So this guy, the director, was running up seven flights to get up to that booth on the top of the theater. He's pounding on the door. And I won't forget this because you could hear it downstairs, and you heard the screaming of the projectionist saying, Get away from that fucking door, or we will shoot you right through the door. This is honestly God truth. Because <laughs> these guys had guns. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> he just he said, fix my movie. I can't have it out of focus. And, of course, it, it fixes itself because, right. because of the, the heat. But the episode was very scary and quite true. So then afterwards, you know, you have a standing ovation, all these people, and Jake Jack Nicholson on stage, all of them. It was an insane, wonderful evening that uh, I will certainly never forget. I mentioned the, the projectionist, because that's a famous story. Even in those days when I used to have to visit the projectionist union to set up the film festival, you'd have to go visit these guys in their fancy offices. And when I, as a kid, since I'm young running the festival, I go up to these offices on Michigan Avenue, I'm standing in the office with bulletproof glass to talk to the secretary, to talk to the head of the projectionist union. I said, why on earth is this bulletproof glass in this office? And I didn't really know all this history yeah. that these guys are part of the, the, the mob, <laughs> part of Al Capone's days of controlling things. You do know who Al Capone is, right? I do know who Al Capone is. <laughs> who doesn't? If I didn't know who Al Capone was, people would be shooting me. But did you know that Al Capone, who controlled the city of Chicago and, and alcohol, drugs, and prostitution, he was only 29 years old. There's, yeah. hope, there's hope for you, Gino. <laughs> I'm only, I've only got six more years to start running illegal booze. I think people would like it. I'm like a good speakeasy. They're coming back. I can think of a few right now in Chicago. So what did 
he ended up having to do when they threatened him. Oh, that that's all over. I explained. Did he just that. leave? And he's like, "No, I'm done." <laughs> he give up. Yeah, he had to. He had to. So when you make a wet print, it's just coming from the lab. It's still wet. So how long does it take for celluloid to dry? I cannot answer that, but you certainly would not immediately take it from the lab and expose, put it through a projector. Right, or expose it. Had, so, you know, it's exciting to, to do this podcast thing. So I asked uh, Victor Skrebneski, this Chicago's world-famous photographer, <laughs> if he would do the photo to, to capture this nose-to-nose idea. He said, sure. And we did a photo shoot to today. We didn't uh, do a photo shoot today. Of the two noses, these two amazing noses. So Victor came up with this whole idea, and you can see it on the the splash page of this this podcast. And then you said, how do I meet Victor, right? So it was back at the beginning of the years of the festival, back in the 60s. I read about it in the Chicago Tribune. He made a little movie, and he was this fashion designer. And I saw this movie, and I said, well, we should show this in the festival, in the second festival in 66. And uh, we became friends ever since then. He started shooting photography and and posters and things for the festival. It was really cool. I said, the problem with the festival is it's not sexy. He said, I'll take care of that. And then he started. Was he a photographer before that? Or was he strictly just a film person? Never film. Always? Never. But he made that film. Just as a... Just as, as a, a lark. What was the film about? A little fashion, fashion and nightclubs in Chicago and the scene, the scene at the time. A little, little ten-minute thing. I would love to watch that. It was called No Comment, as I recall. Anyway, um, I said, you know, the Cannes Film Festival and all these festivals are, are famous for naked girls jumping in fountains, and not famous for their films. They're famous for. The, the European the sex, sexiness, European nudity at its yeah, finest. Yeah, exactly. So he said, "I'll take care of that." So he instantly created our wet, wet T-shirts and all kinds of suggestive stuff for the festival that put us on the map, pretty much. So, uh, I'm going to say. And that. some of those pictures are very scandalous. Absolutely. At the time, my God, they were sure, but they put us on the map, and people wanted to be part of the festival. Then they started to enjoy the films. But it was his the magic of his of his images, the black and whites, that put us there. How, how much of that sexuality did you derive from being friends with Hugh? Uh, Hugh, no, it didn't, it didn't work that way, no. Did you get any inspiration from what he was doing in terms of wanting to create this festival more sexually? Because I don't know no, what the what the time frame of Playboy was, because when was Playboy at its peak? Was it in the, was it in the late 60s? Six, he started in the 60s, yeah. Okay. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, yeah. Playboy so was, right around the time? Yeah. So was the idea of you making the, the festival more sexual, like where did that come from? Why did that idea... Did it spawn from the fact that... Because the, Euro- the European festivals were okay. sexy. So the yeah. ones in America weren't, weren't living up to the well, same there, there level of standard. There weren't any in America. There was no Sundance. There was no other stuff. This was the first one that... We you, were one of the earliest festivals in, in the United States, yeah, in North America, Chicago. So he delivered the goods, and we ran with it, and it became synonymous with the festival. Oh, man. It's interesting going through the studio and like you like I said and like you said 
being a kid in a candy store because this whole I feel like you when you were my age where everything is new everything is exciting and uh, being in Victor studio because he is an accomplished photographer a person of great stature I would say or a person who's actually accomplished a fair amount of things in his life so it's interesting to be but the, the images that he's created for Ralph Lauren and Estee Lauder and David Bowie and Orson Welles and Betty Davis and even Andy Warhol he's created a lot of their work you know synonymous with Skrebnevsky right and his new book just came out of his life he's doing yet another book is he doing another one after this one He's doing it right now. What is the last? Is that going to be his completely last one? I don't think you ever say last in life. You, well, that's what's the latest. Well, the latest, I, latest book. I thought of, maybe I was reading it wrong. I thought last. I, I read that somewhere too, but it's not because now he's got another one. It's your latest. It's your latest movie. It's your latest play. It's your latest book. It's your latest. It everything. could be your last or it could be your latest. So you just say and leave it at latest. Absolutely. How many. So would people fly out? Like, for example, was the David Bowie pictures taken in a Chicago studio? In those days, he probably flew. He'd do the shoots in Paris and London and New York and Chicago. Okay. I would think the Bowie was probably shot in New York, but I don't know at that time. Yeah, I wish, it, I, I, wish I would have... In fact, one of those photos of him and Iman, his wife, the naked one, is, is their wedding photo. It's their wedding invitation. That's actually really? Yes. That's interesting. I wonder <laughs> if we're going to end up in his next book. Uh, Probably not. Oh, because of this great photo he shot of the two of us? Yeah. Of our noses. Right? Our cover? The noses. Interesting concept. Wasn't down with it at first, but then it grew on me. Because nothing like putting your nose on blast. <laughs> also, it was very fucking hilarious, the fact that we had our foreheads... <laughs> forehead to forehead on the... I don't even know. No. I don't even know you. No. <laughs> so let me paint a picture for you guys. The way that we shot the cover photo, which by the time this podcast release you'll know, was by placing our foreheads on to forehead. forehead to forehead, and essentially our nose to nose. Yeah. And that's the way that he shot the picture. But it's remarkable. It was me and Michael standing in a room in a black, not a black, in a white wall. Looking in each other's eyes half of an inch away from each other's face, breathing all types of whatever you ate for breakfast in my face. You, you know, you're lucky I have these Listerine tabs, you know. I, that was totally impossible. To that's be. exactly why I asked for it. And I was like, my breath probably doesn't smell the best. Let me, <laughs> let me get a Listerine, please. That's funny. Anyway, he's a master, and he, he did it, and it's just how he does it. He, he sees it. He sees it and executes it. It's interesting what I would think, like, from my expectations of going into that scenario versus what it actually is, because what I expected going in there was just going to be you, me, and Victor, and there was no... I thought there was going to be larger cameras, larger lenses. You don't do that anymore. That, that's one thing one thing that surprised me about the the photo shoot was that he was using a digital camera. That's what you, of course he used to use Hasselblad and all that. Those days are changed. Let's need that anymore. It's so interesting because a lot of people at least in movies the way that 
large photography events are portrayed is you always have the photographer with all these crazy lenses, all these crazy yeah. lights, and he doesn't... He did all of that, of course, but those days are changed. It, that's, now you that's can just over. buy that's a over. That's over. $400 G7X what, can. Whatever he had, I don't know, but it, it worked. It, was it wasn't anything... The cam- The thing that surprised me the most was the fact that the camera wasn't anything particularly special or moderately super expensive. It was something that anyone... It's, it's the person behind the camera. It is the person behind... <laughs> that. That's really what it is because it, it is. reminds me of this conversation that I had previously with someone where there, there was a challenge where they gave this really famous photographer a child's toy camera. Mm-hmm. And he shot with this child's toy camera one of the most amazing photography series. I don't know exactly remember where it was, but this was probably a few years ago back when I had the conversation. Mm-hmm. But it exemplifies, and seeing him today do it, it really does show that it's not the camera or the equipment that you have. It's the perspective that you have. Of course, you have to play with it in Photoshop and do all these things, but at the same time, you have to have a certain level of an idea and execution for it, and that's what he did. Because from the way that I saw it and the way that... I felt like the podcast was going, or not the podcast, the picture it was going was just us standing there and looking kind of weird. And then I was watching him work. Mm-hmm. And like the first picture that he took, I was like, that is ugly. <laughs> and then you're like, just let him do his thing. Like, That's don't right. watch him, just exactly. let him do the work. Exactly. And you'll come back and you'll see what it is. And then that, that, that is what we did. And we watched the picture after the fact. And it was interesting to see it go from this rough, weird stage of you and me standing there like eye to eye nose to nose nose. breathing each other's space to him making this really cool black and white picture that even at it's alive the picture is absolutely alive and it's very weird how how you said he adds his own touch to the picture and that's what exactly what he did Mm -hmm. because the picture does look like his work Absolutely. And that, to me, it was such an intriguing his, process his, to his, see. His style. It is his style. I love going into things that are new or just different and seeing how people work because it's such an interesting study mm-hmm. of how human beings and how all the things that we have or make an idea of, like, oh, you need this high, fancy camera. Like, you don't need any of that. You just need some creativity and the want to do it. And imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about <laughs> your disliking of the Mad Men pilot episode, which we didn't get all the way through. And mind you, I have to relate to that because when I first watched Mad Men the first time, I only watched exactly how you did it, where I watched 30 minutes of the episode and I was like, this is a boring ass show. Yeah. Why are people watching this? And then a few years down the road, I started to actually give it another chance and that second time around that I gave it another chance I was like okay now I see why you guys like this show it takes a little bit of time to start up and to get you hooked but once you start getting into it it really is a great story well from what I saw you've not been exposed to the ad agency world and that era of the 60s I did not no and they summed it up and I said okay I can see this is going to go for a couple more years just like that yeah I get it the three martini lunch and the the, the, the girl and the, the afternoon and the, the nooners. It, it just became very obvious to me where it's going. Great style. And I don't care. And that's that's perfectly respectable. I can't I can't get on you for that, but at least we tried. And, and I actually the one thing I liked about it, who's the guy? Ham or something? John Ham. Yeah, John Ham. Mm-hmm. Good looking guy. And what he was doing in the in the first episode is what all the ad guys do, and I do it myself all the time if I'm looking for an idea. 
you ask. He's trying to figure out a cigarette campaign to save cigarettes. That's the, op- that's the opening scene. Yeah, yeah. But I, I've dealt with people that worked on campaigns like that. And what you really do do is ask someone that's smoking a cigarette why they're smoking a cigarette, why are you doing it. Even developing things for the festival, you ask your competition or you ask someone, how do you feel about this? And you take all of these notes and put it all together into your perspective of what you're going to do. And as he was doing to save a cigarette campaign, it was, it's, it is exactly what you do in advertising. Um, I don't care. Well, you've, how much experience do you have? What was it like working with the ad agencies in the 60s? What was their culture like? Was it how the episode showed them to be? Or was it a bit different? Or what was the culture of the 1960s ad agency like? Because you worked closely with them to help Exactly. Launch the festival yeah, exactly. and do that. So the people that you were dealing with from the ad agencies, what were they like? They were just as slick as, as he was. But I worked with a lot of teams as they worked with teams. And uh, something that I've, I've captured from that, that whole experience of, and still do is creating a slogan, creating the campaign... He was developing it himself, but usually you do with a team. It's interesting how... So why are you so captured by this uh, this madman thing? Yes, it played for seasons and won Emmys forever, but, you know... I think I'm a sucker for a period drama. I think that's mostly what it is. I think also the way that the show is written is they have great character arcs. Mm-hmm. So, for example... You don't know this, but what Mad Men is about is about the character Don Draper. About the character Don Draper who is faking his way through this ad agency. So he's not, his name really isn't Don Draper. It's some other name, but he stole his name from when he was at war. The person, his lieutenant died. Okay. So they thought, so to like make himself dead or... I don't know if he abandoned... Something along the lines of him adopting a different name. And throughout the whole show, he has what we call imposter syndrome. And he feels that every day with the show. And the show is about him going through the motions and being this super manly, madman-esque person on the outside to people, his co-workers, his wife, whatever. But when he's by himself, he's this very shy, insecure imposter syndrome of a person and that as a show is interesting to me because it's coupled with uh, studying 1960s New York and studying the different levels of for example like one thing that I love watching was like it's like the small details of the show so for example he goes to serve himself a cup of water one day and of course the water levels in the 1960s are not the same as the water levels now so when he goes to serve himself that cup of water the the water is damn near brown and that to them is normal. And it's for me, it's like, it's such a, such a captivating experience watching a show where they pay attention to such a small, minute detail that wouldn't really matter, but actually makes the show what it is. And I kind of like that. It takes you back and they make you feel as if you're there. You're drinking this dirty mud water that everyone drank. And then on top of that, everyone is smoking and it's a chain smoking area and... It's just interesting how that makes you 
it takes you back. And that's why I like the show. I think it's the nostalgia aspect coupled with the story and character arcs that are in the show. And, and a world you've never been exposed to. Exactly, because I don't have much experience about the 60s, so I also learn about pop culture and what America was like back in the day because I don't have that type of knowledge because so, Wikipedia can only do so much. Okay, it works for you. It does work for me, and it's also... I have no intention of ever seeing it. It's interesting <laughs> for me, too, because my parents are young. They're born in the 70s, so they don't have any type of mm-hmm. knowledge or history that they can share with me about the 60s and what the hell, I don't really care much about the 70s or 80s. Mm. I like things before the 60s and before is kind of what intrigues me. Interesting. Okay, I'll buy that. Is there any other shows that you've been looking into wanting to watch that you haven't got to watch yet? Well, since I'm an old friend of Jane Fonda's, I've been watching this this endless series of Grace and Frankie or Frankie and Grace or something. I love that show. Which is pretty clever, I must say. Jane, it's the season just ended. They started again in 2020. It's Jane Fonda uh, and Lily Tomlin, right? Exactly. I didn't know anything about Lily Tomlin before the show. That's I, right. I knew about Jane Fonda and great, her dad. Great stand-up. She's, well, not even a great stand-up. She was a great, imp, not improv, but sketch. Yeah. Because she does, she did created that... Um, Characters. And, and the character with the phone. Exactly. I don't know. what. Exactly. Do you remember the name of that? No. Okay, this is a character that, for the people listening who don't know, Lily Tomlin is famous for this sketch that she did. Of, Tele- telephone operator. Of a telephone operator that was yeah. kind of kind of dumb and snarky at the same time, and it made her a star. 70s or 80s. It is Laugh-in. 1968 Laugh-In, Ernstein the Telephone Operator. So for people who do not know that... That is the name of the sketch, and I highly suggest you watch it. She actually did this set or this type of sketch multiple times. She did it on Laugh-In. Apparently, she did it on the Muppet. Not the Muppets. Um, Sesame Street and Kermit Unplugged and, and she, with Kermit the Frog. And she turned it into a Broadway show. That's interesting. Yeah, she did. I love how, or the idea that you can play this one man person and people really do love it mm-hmm. how she's just because she's not talking to anyone on the phone that's just her of course just making it up on the spot or having rehearsed it and it's interesting how that now i'm surprised that you'd enjoy this frankie and grace thing why i, I find yeah. it actually very cleverly written why would why would you think that because they're too old for you the whole story they're all they're all 80s 70 and 80 year old people up there but yet here i am with you <laughs> So, <laughs> 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 no, but I I think that I am always trying to relate to people in whatever stage of life that they're at, and I I don't necessarily mind that they're older because I enjoy equally as well the Golden Girls, and it doesn't matter to me the level of age or whatever it is as long as it's well written and I can relate to the story to mm-hmm. a certain extent. I'm here for it because the, also the thing about Grace and Frankie is the fact that her they got left for their gay husbands <laughs> or lovers, and that's an interesting plot line because and, it's, and they all have children, and the children are now worried about them. Yeah, and that's yeah. not something that I've seen in other shows. Maybe I'm just inexperienced in the television show era in terms of what I've watched, but I feel like that was kind of a new topic for me, and I kind of like that idea and that way that it's done. 
I don't think you've ever seen that on television before, frankly. It's on cable, of course. And the, and you know what's interesting, too? They started copying that same uh, format with a guy version of it. It's not. I don't think it's exactly the way that Grace and Frankie set out, but after watching Grace and Frankie, I think Netflix started doing more older centric shows where really? yeah where there was a, where these two old dudes were living together I think and they were doing stuff and it's the same concept hmm. and it's interesting how they take that one successful show and they're like all right let's do it again and see if we could replicate yeah. that same demographic but for dudes sure well I'm just discovering as I told you Netflix that's all new to me so I'm enjoying these these binge watching stuff it's cool that you can do this because it's like a it's like a give and take. So, for example, you know about James Fonda and Lily Tomlin from back in the day, and then you get to watch Grace and Frankie in this time and era when they're in their 80s. Yes. Versus for me, I'm watching them in their 80s now, but I also had to learn about Lily Tomlin from the show. I had to learn about James Fonda from the show and doing my own research. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a it's a flip for you and for me. I'm watching it exploring them from the past and you're knowing them from the past. It's new to me because Jane, Jane never played this, this kind of character and seeing her in so many serious, important films in her life, Academy Award films and seeing her play a flip ballsy woman with uh, this other sidekick. It's, it's refreshing. It's wonderful. I I enjoy not knowing Jane now because we did her at the festival years ago and, and uh, she's quite a, she's quite a, what is she like in real life versus her portrayal of this character? Soft-spoken, tough. I just saw her recently. Short. <laughs> I saw her recently <laughs> on CNN. I didn't watch it exactly, but it was on social media where she was talking about how she's going to get arrested every Friday. Yes. Until they start doing something about climate yeah, she's, change. Uh, she's in Washington, yes. That's interesting. She moved to Washington to do as she, she likes causes. I mean, whether it was Vietnam in the old days yeah. or now this. Um, what I mentioned to her when we, we sat and talked one day, I said, what I like about you is when you speak, you have this incredible vulnerability in your voice, whether it's real or not. It may be it's a technique, but I buy into it, and I believe whatever you're saying because you have a, a slight edge that brings me in. That's that acting chops. Maybe. Maybe. Do you think... Now, Lily Tomlin, I've never been a fan of, but, but I very appreciate these two working together. They're beautiful. Them together is great. They are beautiful together. And the guys are great. Everybody's great in the show. Yeah, it's outrageously Because you, you have Charlie Sheen's dad is one of the persons as well. That is true. And then Mark Martin Sheen, yes. That's, Martin Sheen. That's true. And who's his opposite? Uh, I love, really love that character. Is it Sam Waters? Yeah, it is Sam. Yeah. Waterson, is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it is Sam Waterson. They are, they are incredible together. And then they have the... It's a great... I think it's a great casting because the... the I love how each family is respectively weird and quirky in their own way. So, for example, right. example right. Lily Tomlin's family, they adopted the black kid and the drug addict the kid. Drug addict. And that's an interesting dynamic between them two because he's super African in name, but he, yeah. in terms of acting, he's very much so white and mm-hmm. American, but his name is super long and African. And then they have the other white son that used to be a drug addict but is no longer a drug addict and lives in a mini house. And they're so different. That family is so different versus Jane Fonda's family, right. where they're so like the ones the CEO. The two daughters. The two yeah. daughters are yeah. super perky, and yeah. it's so it's so interesting. Well, it's a great hit. And the last season it just ended, and it, as I say, it starts again in the first of the year. 
Now, that's been going on for years. Yeah, this Remarkable. is season five. Remarkable. I'm, I'm just hoping they don't die in the middle of the damn filming. That's all I hope. I was, I was thinking about that while watching the show. I was like, as long as nobody dies, we're good to go. Because also, the level of work that it takes for them to do that, they're at the age of, what, 80, probably doing the level of work that someone in their 20s is doing. You have professional actresses here. Yeah, I know. But it's still, it's different being a professional actor when you're 20 versus being a professional actor when you're 80. You don't have the same level of energy that you do when you're 20. I'm sure and, your memory and, isn't as good. Not, you've never heard of Angela Lansbury. She's about 93, 94. She's still on stage. She's just as dynamic as she ever was. Yeah. Once you're, once you're on, you're on. Yeah, to a certain extent, but what about the people who, as they age, regress into their personality? They once get smaller. You're on, believe me, once you're on, you're on. You may be an old codger sitting over there in that sofa. <laughs> codger. The moment the band begins, you're on. You're on. It's like Judy. On. You are on. Correct. All right, that's it for today. Okay. I, I think we've covered good enough television show topics. So thank you guys for listening. Looking and check out that photo we've been talking about. Yes, Is do check cool? out the photo. And those two noses. And the press amazing. release that's supposed to come with the photos. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know what? <laughs> I cannot believe we chose it, but it works, and I like it. It works. Well, thank you guys. Please subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you next episode. Bye.